All right, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2 again. So we're, um, we're starting a new sequence here, um, but understand that it depends hev- heavily on where we've already been in 1 John. And bear in mind, <clears throat> as we go along, that the overarching theme that we're addressing um, is develop in community. Um, having spent the better part of, well, just over two years developing the theme of draw to Jesus, which I think is priority one. Um, We're moving today, hopefully, we're taking a step closer to understanding what it means to develop in community, but because we just finished with a review Sunday, what, what I have to do today is start spinning new thread that we can weave into this this whole tapestry. So don't forget where, where we've been um, this morning. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In order to like illustrate what's happening here, I have to introduce you to um, my educational reality in 1993, 1994. Um, I was not a great mathematician leading up to the, uh, this, those years. I mean, I wasn't terrible, but I had no great love for math. And entering eighth grade, um, instead of just adding, subtracting, and multiplying fractions, now suddenly there were uh, alphabet letters involved in math. And I had a teacher, I won't name her in case she's still alive and happened to stumble across this sermon on the internet, uh, who had no business being a math teacher, probably didn't want to be a math teacher, and made me hate math for sure. So... Um, when my folks decided to homeschool my brother and I halfway through my eighth grade year, I had already committed to a course of not embracing the alphabet mixing with math and went to great lengths to cheat my way through math in high school and junior high in order to avoid understanding what X and Y had to do with numbers. The commandment that John references here is not new because it does not transcend or replace the commandment that the people of God had had throughout history from the moment that they were given the the commandments. Um, There's no addition here in 1 John 2 to the moral law. And there has been no addition to the moral law since it was first given in Exodus. In Matthew 22, uh, verse 34, you'll, you'll probably recall this from last week because I made reference to it last week. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four 34 says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the other, the second, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law or all the law and the prophets. And what we did last week was I showed you that we're not replacing the Decalogue. We're not, um, we're, we're not like reducing the Ten Commandments to two. So the way I illustrated this last week is we saw on the screen, I guess I could just do it again. I'm not going to do it again. We saw the Ten Commandments, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, listed out. I'm going to do it again because I think it was helpful. Oh, let's see if I regret this real fast. Hey, Kate, when I get done with the... Nice. When I get done with the projector, I'll need you to take it back over, okay? Or just figure out a way to shut it off. Oh, it's going to be the wrong orientation, but that's okay. Oh, look at this. Couldn't have gone any better. All right. Again, wrong orientation. All right, so there we have the Ten Commandments. Can everybody see it? Is it big enough? Good? Okay. Um, and, and what you can do to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22, when the Pharisee says, what's the great commandment in the law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, as though there are only two commandments, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what I said was you can split these, uh, the Ten Commandments, just like this. First table, love God. Second table, love your neighbor. Well, John says, this is not a new commandment. I'm not giving you a new commandment. And we went to Matthew 22 and saw how it's not a new commandment. Because Jesus says, you can summarize the Ten Commandments with these two. Love God, love your neighbor. When John writes and says, I'm not giving you a new commandment, what we can understand is it's not new because what it does is clarify the original commandment. The original commandment being um, don't have any idols. Don't you know, use the, the Lord your God's name in vain. Um, worship me one day in seven. Set it aside and keep it holy. And then you get into don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't. So you, you have to take what John is saying and recognize that, yeah, it's not new in that it doesn't replace what's already been given, but it is new because he says, but in this sense, it is new. So it's new in that it clarifies. So consider this. Look at, um, flip to Matthew 5 in your Bible. And we'll see a really good example of Jesus clarifying the law, the existing commandment. Matthew 5, look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old. This is Jesus talking, right? You've heard that it was said to those of old. So back in the day, you heard it was said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What are we doing? We're not replacing the original commandment. We are clarifying it. 
We're putting it in new light, making it more comprehensible, easily, easily understood. Look at verse 27. All the men love this one. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And guys go, all right, easy enough. I'm not going to go have an, a, a, a romantic interlude or physical encounter with somebody other than my wife. But then Jesus says, I say to you, verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not a new commandment, but certainly made new in Christ. Now look at John 13, 34. John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Do you guys want to go to Leviticus or do you want to take my word for it? All right. Leviticus 19, 18 is the first time in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, it's the first time that you see the directive spelled out explicitly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord your God. So it's said differently than the second or first table, rather the first table in the law and the second table in the law and the Ten Commandments. It's said differently, love your neighbor as yourself. Broadly speaking, that would make it difficult if you're loving your neighbor as yourself. It would make you difficult to commit adultery with his wife, right? It would make it difficult to steal from him, right? It would make it difficult to lie about him in, in court. It would make it really difficult to murder him because that's not like those aren't loving things to do to somebody. So it's a summary statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. In second grade, I think, I learned, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we called it the golden rule. And it's, I mean, I mean, it works. It's got its limitations. But, you know, like until you encounter a masochist, it works. Most people, by and large, if you treat them the way you'd like to be treated, they'll appreciate that because you're probably treating them well. So that's even a reduction of love your neighbor as you love yourself. So let's step it up. Do unto others. Steps up to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Steps up to a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is not giving a new commandment. He's clarifying the old commandment. The old command given to love one another is said explicitly in Leviticus 19, 18. But Jesus changes neighbor to one another and he changes yourself to as I have loved you. Instead of love your neighbor as you love yourself, it's love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you? Well, if you're lost, you're like, he didn't. I don't care. Not even sure why I'm here. Let me tell you how Jesus loved you. You are still here. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There is no one righteous, not one. All of humanity is, because of the fall of Adam into sin, been, we have all been plunged into chaos and brokenness. Worse of all, we've been plunged into separation from the one who created us. Worse yet, we've been given a nature that is incapable of choosing consistently what is right. I'm not saying that if you, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know how to do the right thing. I'm saying that you can't with any consistency do the right thing. So you are constantly racking up a debt with a thrice holy God who said, don't do evil things. You're constantly racking up a debt with him by doing evil things. Oh, and guess what? Christians are not excluded for this, from this, which is why Paul says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body, the body of this death? The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those I do. So I recognize then this truth, that evil is present with me, the one who wants to do good. So Christians aren't better. The difference is we have two desires, a desire to be pleasing to God born out of gratitude and our remaining fleshly desire to do things that we know full well we shouldn't be doing. A lost person is missing one of those. You might be able to engage in good morality out of fear, out of you know, concern over an eventual judgment, but you cannot rightly obey the holy mandate of God just because you're scared of him. It doesn't work. It's not effective. So a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you. How did he love you? Number one, you're still here. You're still drawing breath. That's the kindness of God. Come on, I, you don't even have to, we don't even have to go through your diary. Just between yourself and your functioning conscience, isn't it true you have done things that are breathtakingly evil in retrospect at the very least? Things that you swore when you were little you would never do, you've now done. Why? Because you can't obey the law. So how has Jesus loved you? He's been patient. God has been patient. You're still drawing breath. You haven't yet faced judgment. How else has he loved you? Well, let me tell you, God, rather than redoing Genesis 6, where he wipes out humanity with a flood, instead covenanted together with the Son before eternity began, whatever that means, to save of all of humanity some from their sin. And the way that he accomplished this is he wrapped himself in human flesh, came down to the muck and the mire of humanity, really lived with a human nature, really fulfilled everything that God had commanded without failing, and then really died horribly, unnecessarily, from a human perspective, from a justice perspective. Hadn't done anything to deserve to be crucified. Why did he die? Isaiah 53 says he had to be wounded so that we could be healed. You deserve that. You deserve the treatment that Christ got before the cross and on the cross, and you deserve it for eternity. Those that die outside of being, of having uh, 
of experiencing faith in Jesus Christ. After judgment, we'll be equipped with a body that is capable of dying forever. I can't even conceive of that. So what has Jesus done? Well, after he died and was buried, he rose again. He was resurrected because he couldn't be held in death. He was perfect. So he paid the price for your sins and then breathed again and came back to life victorious over sin and death and hell. And now all those that embrace those truths and him, his person by faith, are rescued and redeemed from sin into the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the promise for us is, if we believe, eternal life rather than eternal death. Is there any more perfect demonstration of love than laying down your life for your friends? No. You know how I know? Because Jesus said so. Greater love hath no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And I have called you friends. That's what he said. Sinners made righteous by the work of the friend of sinners ought to be able to express the same love we have received from him to one another. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. Whatever Christ did, he did as a perfect demonstration of what is good in the sight of God. Amen? Um, when we're struggling to follow instructions to do a new task, and a teacher comes along and patiently shows us how to do it right, the instructions suddenly make more sense. You ever experienced this? If you've tried to learn to play guitar... Um, then you, I hope you've experienced this. You can look at a piece of music or a piece of tablature. You can listen to something that you're trying to learn and like try to figure out how to recreate it. But then if you sit down with somebody who's skilled, like my students used to do, and go, I can't figure out how to play this. And the skilled person shows you, demonstrates for you how to do it, suddenly it becomes so much easier. And the skilled person can give you tips. So I've never cut a good 90 degree corner, ever. Trim piece or otherwise. And it's never going to happen. I've given up. I realize this now. I have all of the tools necessary to cut a perfect 90. But something happens to me when I walk away from the place where the thing is going to go having measured it carefully, and I get over to the saw, I can't remember if it's a 90 this way or is it this way. And after I cut the first piece, now do I flip the second piece over? And so then I get back and I have this, right? And it needs to be this. Happens to me routinely. If I sat down with Roy or somebody else who's really skilled at, at carpentry, I bet there's three or four tips they could give me to stop that from happening. And then I'd be like, oh, that's so easy. Oh, I wish I had known that. Christ didn't come with a revolutionary new commandment that blew everyone's mind. It's not what happened. He clarified the old, and that made it new. Second, so that's first. 
Second, regenerate people have a capacity for love that the unregenerate simply don't. Oh, that's not a very, like, good Sunday morning sermon seeker friendly thing to say. And I'm, of course, I'm super aware that there are people in our midst from Sunday to Sunday who maybe, at the very least, won't agree with fundamentally what it is that I'm saying. I get that. And there's a part of me that's tempted to try to like take off the rough edges and make it more palatable. Um, I mean, that's, that's normal. That's what a considerate person does. Let me make this as digestible as possible. But there are some things you can't make digestible, and this is one of them. Regenerate, meaning born again, meaning Christian believers. Regenerate people have a capacity for love that non-Christian people simply do not have. That's offensive. What a horrible thing to say in a world, it appears to me, that is filled mostly with people that don't love Jesus. What a horrible thing to say. You're not capable of loving one another the way I am. It's not a horrible thing to say. It's a true thing to say. And oh, by the way, what that means is I then will be judged with a stricter judgment. It's not a new commandment. The old commandment is like it. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie about one another in court. But it's new for me. Because it's not even love you the way I want to be loved. No, no, no. It's love you the way Jesus loved you, which means that if I'm going to love you, I've got to be engaged in acts of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do you good at my own expense. That's love. You can't do that if you're lost. Well, I mean, could you go through the motions? Yeah. I mean, technically, yeah. But where is it coming from? What's your motivation to do it? Christian activities in and of themselves do not change sinners into saints. However, when Christ redeems a sinner, when Christ redeems a sinner, the sinner now has life and lives in the light of God's presence. That is a positional change. Before I was over here, in, oh, it works now. I was over here in the darkness God brings me into light, and now the things that I do, the things that I say, the motivations of my heart flow from the reality of where I am positionally in relationship with him. In Christ, we're taken out of darkness and death and have new abilities to be pleasing to God, partly because in the light, I can actually see myself. I can actually see how desperately in need of mercy I am. In the dark, I couldn't see it. Not that well, anyway. Now I'm in the light. Now I understand. Unregenerate people are not capable of the kind of love that a Christian is capable of. So let's go back to 1994. Why is there X's and Y's in my math book? Why is this horrible person belittling me for not understanding why there are X's and Y's in my math book. When you're 14, you can't understand things like she's unhappy with her station in life and is taking it out on you. When you're 43, you understand it perfectly, right? 
So I learned to resent math. Four or five years later, a math professor came through church one weekend. Uh, once was enough for him. And um, I got into a brief conversation with him. Uh, and I was like, oh, what do you do? And he said, I'm a math professor. And I went, oh, I hate math. I mean, I, I just thought we should get that out of the way, lest he think we were going to have any kind of relationship based upon math. And he said, really, when did you start hating math? What a great question, first of all. I don't think I'd ever been asked when I started to hate something before. When did I start to hate math? And I realized, yeah, I didn't hate it my whole life. I really started to hate it in eighth grade. Oh, Mrs. So-and-so. And it all comes flooding back. And it, I mean, I've admittedly been five or six years. And I said, oh, I was eighth grade. And he goes, yeah, oh, that makes sense. You had a math teacher that didn't love math. And I was like, you know what? You're right, I did. And he goes, yeah, if you had a teacher that really loved math, you would learn to love it. And I laughed. I went, <laughs> I won't. Fast forward. So now we're going to go from 94 to 2014. Um, I decided, I was like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll get a degree in biblical counseling because that'll be smart. That'll help you know, pave the road to my future. But in order to do that, I need to get all these undergraduate studies out of the way. So let me go back to school, which meant I had to go take this placement test that like, how bad is it? Where do we need to start him in college? And it was, unsurprisingly, eighth grade math. Algebra one. And I like, I almost, I almost didn't. I was almost like, well, then there goes that. That's just not gonna happen. And, um, but then I was talking to this advisor and they're like, well, we actually have a combined algebra one, algebra two that you can do and you can knock it out in one quarter. And I'm like, it's in 20 years, I haven't figured anything out about algebra. Should we really be combining it? And the student advisor's like, we have really good teachers here. And I remembered back to this math professor being like, if you had a good teacher that loved math, and I'm like, oh, maybe that'll make the difference. So Darlene Hatcher enters my life in the fall of 2013, actually. And um, Darlene um, only had one request of her students, and that was that we don't call her Hatch, which immediately the law produced in me sinning of all kinds, and that's all I wanted to call her. But she had this whiteboard that was like pristine. There was not any. You know, in school, the whiteboards have leftover marker all over them. Hers was pristine, ghost white. And I got to see why, because she cleaned it really carefully. And then she had like 12 different colors of markers um, that, that she used. And uh, so she starts teaching us how to <laughs> add, subtract, and multiply fractions. I'm 34 at this point, learning how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide fractions. But she does it in a fascinating way. She uses a different colored marker for numerator than denominator. She has little poems that she'll say to us. And I'm, it probably, like, I'm not the oldest one in the class, but it's mostly like college-age kids and a couple of adults. She had little poems. She had little rhymes that she would do. And uh, I walked away a couple of months later with um, a 4-0 in Algebra 1 and Algebra 2. Perfect. Perfect score. I mean, I worked at it. Don't get me wrong. And I was like, all right, let's get, let's get college algebra out of the way as well. So the next semester, 
I was like, you have to put me in Darlene Hatcher's class. That's all there is to it. And so they did. And I walked out of that semester with a 4.0 in college algebra. So in six months, I did what I couldn't do in 20 years before because I had somebody putting these things in new light. I had a good teacher. I had a good example. I had somebody that could make the difference to me and teach me in a way that I could comprehend algebra. Now, I've since forgotten everything that I learned. <laughs> but the important thing is the illustration is the right person putting things in the right light will make it comprehensible to you. What happened to me was not that I suddenly had a love for algebra. It's that I met somebody else who did. And when you meet Jesus, what happens is not that you, you, you suddenly have a love for God. It's that you've met somebody else who does have a love for God. And you see what it looks like when somebody who loves God actually does what God commands. And he does it in a way that's not, you know, like, oh, let me whip myself and put on the Celeste belt and rub salt in my wounds. It's somebody that does it with joy because it's his desire to be in relationship with his father. And so you, you see this with the eyes of faith through the word of God and you begin to comprehend it's much different than just climbing some mountain so that you can talk to the old man in the sky. It's much different than, you know, rowing out into the middle of the ocean that you might encounter him. It's much different than, than it's stapling yourself to a tree for three nights in a storm so you might get a vision. What it is, is walking with the son of God who loves God and wants to keep his commandments puts loving God and keeping his commandments in a whole new light for you. And you begin to appreciate, oh, these commandments are not for God. These are not about him needing to see his will exercised on the earth. It's about him knowing what's best for human flourishing. You want your marriage to be healthy? Maybe do this. You want your kids to be healthy? Maybe raise them like this. Do you want to have a good work ethic? Maybe try to appreciate this. The word of God is steadily, constantly, relentlessly drawing sinners into light. And when you get into the light, what happens? Your standing before God changes because Jesus washes you of your sin, draws you into relationship with himself and his father. And when your standing changes, then your understanding changes. Your comprehension changes. So what's the not new commandment John is referencing? In 1 John 2, verse 9, which I'm not going to preach, so relax. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And immediately, immediately, we see another reason John is careful to point out that this isn't a new commandment. No commandment can be interpreted as a means for gaining salvation. It's not a new commandment. This is not, okay, uh, Jesus did away with the old ceremonial law. Jesus accomplished all the commandments so that we're not on a performance treadmill trying to get to the place where we can be pleasing to God. We, oh, but, 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 but here's a new commandment that you can do to try to be pleasing to God. No, no, no. 
It is not love one another so that God will love you. Remember where we came from, right? Look back at verse 3, 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Not by this we come to know him, we keep his commandments. It's by this we know we have come to know him. Way number one, that we know we've, we've, we know him. Way number one that we know that we know him is we keep his commandments. Way number two, way number two that we know that we know him. A clarification, right? We do not only love God. A Christian does not only love God. First table of the law. Have no other gods. No idols. Don't take my, my name in vain. Keep one day and seven holy. Religious people get that. I have to love God. But Christians don't only love God. Second table of the law. Love one another as I have loved you. The thing about moralistic deism, our series in Galatians, the thing about man-made religion, our series in Haggai, the thing about the well of religion, that gospel fluency series that I did when we all first met together, the thing about asceticism, Colossians, remember? The thing about double-minded religious hypocrisy, James, remember? Do we remember? The thing about viewing God through your circumstances, Ruth. The thing about all of those is that moralistic deism never takes into consideration the dignity, worthiness, and value of other people. It just doesn't. Go talk to any moralist. They don't give a rip about anybody else. It's always an amplified view of self, either magnifying or diminishing your own value, but giving almost no thought to anyone else's value. And the thing about having new life in Jesus Christ is that it changes your view of other people forever because it changes your view of yourself forever. Creates in your heart the capacity to care for the people around you. Not a new commandment, but evidence for you to consider, am I a child of God? Am I a child of God? Have I met him by faith? Do I have a relationship with him? Well, here's a question. How do you care for people in your own local church? And I hate ending like this, but I have no choice. What did you do last week while Lydia had her open house? Church? Were you there? What did you do uh, Friday night for Katie and Justin's shower? Were you there? What are you going to do this coming Saturday when Leah and Caden tie the knot? It's our church's first wedding. And you'll, I mean, if you show up on Saturday, at least you'll understand why I can't preach worth a rip on Sunday the following day. And, and I'm, this is, not, let me keep going. What about Sunday morning? Would you agree that one, one sure way to love the people of God would just be show up? Just be there? Oh, nobody cares about me. You don't know that. Show up. Find out. Nobody ignores me. Nobody says anything. Go say hi to them. Go engage them. This is the thing about being in Christ is it gives you the ability to love other people that you never had 
left to yourself. What about Tuesday night, small group? You ever go? You make it a priority? And, and okay, so now let me say all of, the, all of the caveats. I get it. Other things come up. We have other plans. We have other priorities. Some people are working two, three, four jobs. I get all that. I'm not saying if you're not at every church-related event, you're not a Christian. Don't hear that. Hear my heart. What I'm saying is an expression of love for other people might be that you're around when there's stuff going on, right? Then you would have one more little piece of evidence to go into your arsenal when the devil shows up at the foot of your bed telling you, you don't know Jesus. Christians don't live like this. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I love his people. And I'm trying to keep his commandments. John is trying to equip us with the means of knowing that we know him. And the one that he just gave us is those who are in the light love those at the very least who are in the light. Got to show up. And then you'll have that assurance. All right. Second Corinthians 13, five. I'll close with this. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. So I would encourage, I'm going to do it too, all of us to take a real hard look at whether we love the people of God. And then do we love our neighbors? And then do we love our enemies? And pray for those who persecute us. There are no exemptions to the love mandate. Let's pray and then we're going to do some business.